Welcome to Play by Players, an MLSPA podcast. This show is brought to you by the players and is all about the players, both past and present, who have plied their trade in MLS. You'll hear about each player's journey into the game, their careers and life after the game, on the field and off. It's all on the table. Now here's your host, former MLS player, Bobby Boswell. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Play by Players. Today, we are joined by uh, one of the the young up and coming, although he doesn't seem young to me, but he's young in age, um, forwards in in MLS. He's uh, he's on the U.S. men's national team radar, both at the youth level and at the, uh, the senior level. He's played over 120 games in MLS. He scored over 30 goals, uh, which is a uh, pretty impressive numbers. Please welcome to the podcast, Jeremy Abobasi. Thanks for having me, buddy. How's everything going? Where, where are you at right now? Uh, I'm back home in Bethesda, Maryland. So it's, it's good to be with family. Definitely that's been a, a big lift from you know the long year. Yeah, and it, it's been a, a heck of a year for everyone, both uh, on the field, off the field. Um, I can't imagine what it was like as a player. How are, how are you holding up in terms of, uh, I know you have a ton of stuff going on, but how are you holding up m- mentally? It was a tough year. I mean, we're not, we're not unique as professional athletes, right? Everyone had a mess of a year, and we're just trying to get the most out of it. But for me personally, it started out on a low, you know, rehabbing surgery at the beginning of 2020, uh, late 2019. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hit, which was another shock, but I was able to refocus my injury and make sure that when I did get back to the field, I felt real confident mentally that, yeah, I was able to put myself, expose myself out there knowing that I was safe. Uh, And so finally, you know, you start to find some sort of rhythm in this awkwardness of a year. and then, yeah, I found myself in the fall with a concussion, sidelined for a good month, and just winding the season down in a in an awkward fashion. Maybe a little bit of unfinished business. We, I personally felt, and our team also felt, but that's that's part of the cycle, right? You get another go at it the following year. Uh, but yeah, it's been it's been a long year. Yeah, and I don't I don't want to jump too far ahead. I, I try to keep it a little linear in terms of uh, your your journey. But, um, you know, you guys in, in Portland had the most interesting thing, I think, of the year in that, uh, as far as we knew, the MLS back was, was going to be the only – the tournament was going to be the only soccer that we could potentially see. Uh, you guys go on this, this great run. Uh, you have a, a good tournament, and then uh, you win. You're celebrating, and then, like, the next day they're like, and we're playing next week. Uh, I, just, I just can't imagine – um, you know, I kind of feel like that's how CONCACAF is, right? Except usually you don't win CONCACAF. It's just, it's just you get this high from making it to the next round, and then all of a sudden you have to go to play. I, I'm not saying any game is not meaningful, but they're definitely less meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, is that how you felt it was? It was a challenge because <laughs> we invested a lot of time and energy into that bubble. Uh, I'm sure you've spoken to a lot of, you know, your ex-teammates and friends around the league, but it was a, the bubble itself was a really tough place to be as far as mentally executing to perform on the field and without a real preseason, without proper games and maybe the exact fitness levels and sharpness that you want to get into it. So the further and further you went along, the further and further you're away from your family for extended periods of time and people were getting a little anxious to get back home. So to finally let all that out 
with a championship game uh, and a relative degree of unknown as to what would follow. Uh, we were we were on cloud nine for <laughs> those several hours, and then we got a call like, "Yo, you're playing you're playing in a few days." And we're like, a "Few days? <laughs> like, why are we?" We felt like almost it was a disadvantage to go this far if we were going to be missing uh, some valuable days off going into the regular season. Uh, but ultimately, everything worked itself out. I mean, we ended up getting uh, maybe a week, and we had that championship hangover, unfortunately losing uh, a bad one to Seattle at home, and I think losing a few more after that or, or dropping some points. So that's all to say that the tournament feeling was a good one after all that stress that was building up and some of those emotions. Yeah, well, I I mean, I enjoyed that tournament, and I, I was invested into it emotionally. And then, you know, I, I care, obviously, more about the players and, and what the protocols were and stuff. So and on one sense, I was, uh, I was, you know, as a fan, you want to see soccer, but as a human and a guy that likes a lot of the players in the league and knows what some of that process is, it's it wasn't fun to realize what y'all were going through, the testing all the time. Uh, there was all kinds of jokes online about the food, but like you said, the bubble, the bubble was uh, maybe not the best. That's, I don't want to harp on that. I want to talk about you. Um, I know you talked about being in Bethesda. I know this is, uh, it's not really where your story began. I think your story began in France. Is that right? Uh, it's like the beginning marker, but I really grew up in DC. I, I moved here when I was a little, little kid, three years old. Okay. And, and you, is it DC proper or are you, you Bethesda, you claim in DC, but you're really, you're really a Maryland guy. You know, for the rest of the country, I'm DC. <laughs> okay. Bethesda, and they're like, what's Bethesda? Yeah. But I bounced around. I mean, we, my family settled around DuPont uh, in early two thousands, then moved out to Chevy Chase and then ended up in Bethesda for the last decade or a little more than a decade. So I've been around the DC metro area, especially on the Maryland side. But I'll okay. DC. Cool. I've been around DC too, but in a different fashion. Um, but uh, you, your story is fascinating to me. Um, I love I love the any kind of family story, and your family is is one of the more unique ones uh, of anyone I've uh, interviewed and anyone I've probably ever met. Um, talk to me a little bit about your parents and where they're from. Uh, kind of, I want to build a little bit on on your background and how diverse it is. Yeah, my uh, my dad is from Cameroon and my mom's from Madagascar, and you know they come from really education first backgrounds. So through excelling in their environments, they're able to go to university in France and continue to build upon that work. And that's where they met and ultimately had my brother and I uh, while my or while my father was in grad school in Switzerland. And through that, uh, through that business degree, he was able to come straight to DC and work for the World Bank. And so I would say that kind of that path and how education took him and her so many different places, uh, really instilled a culture within my brother and I that, okay, we're going to have to study first and anything else we do is on the side. And it's kind of reflected in the ability, the luck that we had in being able to settle in Bethesda, quiet, really good public schools. And then follow that up with going to really good school colleges as well. My brother going to Williams in Massachusetts and myself at Duke. So it was definitely an interesting conversation when a 14, 13, 14 year old boy was telling his father that he wanted to go pro, <laughs> but it, it was good. 
Yeah, and it worked out. It worked out on some level. So uh, I, I know he's probably proud of you. Is he? Is he in DC? I saw something. That he was living in Casablanca. Is that? Yeah. So he's based out of Casablanca. He's been there for a couple of years now, but he is back for the holidays as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I laugh because um, I know where some of those places are, but I didn't. I always have to Google uh, like Madagascar, for instance. So it's fun to. Uh, I'd imagine your whole life you've been having to explain to people where certain places are just because uh, not a lot of people, I feel like, know some of those uh, some of those answers. Yeah, the, the biggest challenge growing up has been telling people Madagascar wasn't a made-up <laughs> country from the movie. The cartoon? <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, you're from Madagascar? I thought that was just a movie. And I'm like, <laughs> this conversation can end. <laughs> like, or, or Casablanca is just a movie. Um, yeah. Uh, that's a little old for for even me, um, but I know you 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 speak French. Is that right? You're bilingual. Yeah. And how's your Spanish? I mean, has it gotten better as a as an MLS player, especially in Portland? Yeah. My luckily, I I, I don't know if it's foresight or just childish curiosity, but in middle school, I I chose to study Spanish instead of go through like the reading curriculum okay. and it's really been paying off i took seven years from middle school through high school and lots of spanish speaking friends as well here in this really international area so a lot of my friends parents speak spanish as a first language and i was able to practice with them so then getting into a locker room full of spanish speakers uh, really forced me to sharpen up those skills which has been pretty useful for me yeah, no, that's awesome. I, I'm I'm always impressed by uh, bilingual. So you're trilingual, which is even cooler. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Walter Johnson High School. This is, uh, you know, I I know that we don't always talk a lot about high school, but I, I thought there were some interesting things from your your time in high school. Um, I know the first thing I want to talk about is you had uh, some teammates. Uh, one of them is uh, Gideon, and and I saw a I saw a quote that at the time you'd said he was. Uh, you know, more developed and he was a better player and he, he needed to be challenged and, and going overseas and playing in Europe. Um, and I'm kind of curious as to uh, if you feel like you've kind of come full circle, I thought you kind of undersold yourself uh, maybe when you were younger, but now you're the one I think that's thriving and um, you know, what, what that's like having a teammate that was going to be the guy. And now maybe uh, you're kind of the guy from, from the same school. Yeah, I think, Walter Johnson was a really good environment academically and athletically from I remember our freshman year we were both on varsity together and which was a big deal at the time I know people are just are all up in academy now and understandably that's kind of the best way to continue their development and get to the professional level early on in my opinion at least uh, but varsity was really cool at the time and we had a really strong team went undefeated until the state final and conceded with 17 seconds to go uh, so the team tied it up on us and we were just shocked and then pulled a fast one in overtime. So we, uh, through that environment, obviously there was a lot of press around our team with Gideon's, uh, imminent departure to Arsenal. And so we were all just making sure that he was in the best position so that when he got to Arsenal, uh, he would be ready to thrive there. And unfortunately, it's sports, you know, sports happen when we're going pro at a young age, when we're going pro, period. For me, when I'm leaving college, everyone's always telling us injuries might happen. You know, do you really want to do that? Do you really want to risk it? But at the end of the day, this is our passion and this is what we want. So he took a big chance and, you know, had a lot of success early on. I remember watching him from my TV 
watching him in Champions League, watching him in FA Cup, and knowing that his career was limitless. And obviously, you know, fate takes a toll on everyone, right? And as, as one of his best friends, it was, it was really challenging to watch him go through the injuries that he's gone through. But I know him, and he's extremely resilient. And through all of this, I, I know that there's a lot to come out of his career, and, and I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, and listen, I grew up playing with guys that were much more talented than me, and, and um, you know, sometimes it's not about the break. I played with a lot of guys that were coaches' sons, professional coach, uh, professional players, and they just burnt out. So um, there's something to be said about not just, you know, fate, but work ethic and a continuation of believing in yourself. And, and I think, um, you know, I was, it was interested when I saw that quote that you said, you know, you weren't, you weren't up to the level of talent, but um, as we'll see, you know, with some of your accolades and some of the things you've done that I think you were, um, you're just being humble, but um, that's okay too. Uh, I, you hinted at that loss. I, I saw that you, you still carry that loss as like, it, I thought it was kind of a, maybe a thing that you were giving your buddies from high school some love, but it sounds like that loss is still hurting you and, and you still use that as motivation. Uh, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's just a high school game, but you want to win. We're competitors. And it was a, it felt like a historic season. Like in that moment, we felt like we were unstoppable and the vibe around the locker room was really, really good. Uh, so to not cap it off, especially with 17 seconds to go, it was like your perfect storybook ending, just going to trash all, on one on one fate of a like the swing of a kick. Yeah. So it's definitely in the back of my mind. We joke around about it now, but it was it was real back in the day. Yeah. No. And then the other thing is is you hinted at it that the academy is the way to go now. Um, and then, am I right? You played only three years of high school, and then you made the decision to to not play. Is that is that uh, correct in, in my understanding? So I played two years of high school and then one year of academy, but I graduated high school in three years. Okay, so I knew you graduated early, um, but how, like, I'm just baffled. Like, high school for me, my team, we sucked. Like, we didn't have – I think we had an un, a winless season. You had an undefeated season. I think we went, like, a whole season without winning. Um, but I'm just fascinated – by kids now not even playing in high school. I had Chris Mueller on and he didn't play at all. And I said, how did anyone know you were good at something? You know, cause a lot of, a lot of your identity is, is in, you know, your, your sports, especially in, um, you know, sport rich places. And I think everywhere now it seems to be in America that it's like that. So I guess, you know, what was that like to say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to play high school soccer. You're, you're having great success. You're having a lot of fun you make some great relationships and then you just say like, Hey, I, I'm not going to do this because the Academy's uh, you know, going to get me to where I want to go a little better. Yeah. I think people were understanding. I, I had had my moment in the spotlight per se. Um, that freshman year, you know, we got the whole school involved. It, it felt good to, to be playing for, for other people feel like you were representing someone that you don't quite get in the club soccer landscape, which is what I was in as well. Uh, so by the time after my sophomore season, when I decided that it was time to move on to academy, that was the culmination of a group decision with my club team, where we were going to merge with an academy and and be able to continue our environment that we rated really highly. I mean, this is the same environment that built Gideon, that built you know Chase Gasper on Minnesota, that built a bunch of guys that would go on to top D1 programs and challenge for MLS minutes and USL minutes. So by that time, everyone kind of knew where I stood and understood that it was 
the right decision for my, uh, for my future. And I think in a different world, if I grew up in a different community where I didn't have the kind of club soccer bubble that my coach was able to create, Matt Pilkington, who has now replicated it and if not more than bettered it with New York City FC's academy, uh, I might have been in an academy system sooner. And, you know, who, who knows what kind of doors that might have opened or closed, but I don't really regret any of those decisions as well. Okay. And you, uh, you kind of took something I was going to say. You did play club soccer. A lot of, a lot of uh, guys went pro, both uh, MLS and USL from that. I think you're the leading scorer in the developmental academy the, the, you know, when you did play in it, um, which uh, you know, I, I hinted at it at the beginning. You played 120 games, 122, I think. I think you scored 32 goals across all competitions. That's a pretty, pretty good goal-scoring record. Um, you know, and, and you've shown that, I think, from an early age, and you're continuing to show that. And hopefully you, you keep doing that, especially with your, uh, your time with the national team. But uh, let's talk about uh, the decision to go to college. I know you were looking at academically, uh, I think Stanford and, uh, and, and Duke um, and maybe one other. Well, you know, talk to me about making the decision to go, uh, go to North Carolina and, and play at Duke. Yeah, so, again, trying to find the right balance of academics and athletics was really important. But my sophomore year of high school, I had been on trial with Fulham in England, and there was an opportunity to stay there full time. Uh, and, unfortunately, given the kind of regulations you need to, to meet a work permit there, I wasn't able to really explore that opportunity. So from that moment, it was always about which opportunity is going to get me to the professional level quickest. And I was looking at Duke. I was looking at Stanford because they, those meet the academic rigor that I was trying to challenge myself with. And then I was looking at Maryland as well. Yes, for the academics, but also primarily because of the history of, of players coming out of Maryland and their success in MLS. But as I was refining the process, uh, the challenges of getting guaranteeing my acceptance into Stanford, graduating Three, uh, graduating in three years was a little bit less certain than going to maybe a slightly lower tiered academic school uh, in Duke and where I would be guaranteed my admission. And then I really started to phase Maryland out of that process because I wanted to kind of step away from the, my close circle of friends who would probably go to the local state school, knowing that I might be a little bit more distracted if they were around me. So four hours away from home felt like a good balance of, you know, far enough to, to work in isolation and really focus on my goals, but also not so far that I couldn't go home if I needed to in an emergency scenario. Uh, and also obviously met that academic threshold. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that you're showing at a young age that you're, you're, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say you ever overthink anything, but I definitely think you have not, left anything uh, any stone unturned at least uh, not that you you can control in terms of your thinking um are you and i'm just curious i know your dad's in business are, and are you in do you do economics is that right i was leaning down economics a little bit of psych maybe education i mean i was i only stayed three semesters so i was able to explore a little bit before really committing to anything and, and I, are you still going to try to go back? Are you going to do online? Or, or where, where's your thinking with that? The plan is definitely to go back to Duke. When I was being recruited, the, co 
the coach said that as long as I come in, uh, I'll always be able to come back to Duke. And that was something that was really important given the goals that I had set for myself to, to leave as soon as I was ready, which hopefully would have meant on the sooner side. Okay. Um, and, and I just want to, did you work, I think you were an intern or you worked in the Senate. Was that during your time in college or was that? Uh, so I didn't work in the Senate. I was doing volunteering on uh, Senator Chris Van Hollen's campaign, just doing okay. some canvassing around the neighborhood with a friend of mine uh, who also happens to be a family friend. Uh, I played soccer with his son growing up and my brother played soccer with his uh, older son. So we've got a, a good relationship between our families and uh, wanted to help him uh, take the next step from House to Senate. And then did you, I mean, at that point, were you, were you pretty knowledgeable about some of the inner workings of the government or were you just kind of, you know, just helping out and getting some volunteer hours or, uh, <laughs> you know, what was your, what was your logic there in, in terms of, I know he's a family friend and you had a buddy, but uh, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to set people up for what's to come in terms of some of the, uh, some of the initiatives you have going and, and some of the things you have going on and, and, you know, with social causes. Yeah, no, I've been, I mean, I've, I'd been attending his fundraiser since I was a kid. So I was definitely growing up in the, the landscape of politics, just being in a, in a DC suburb. But at that point, I was just wanting to find a way to be active in the 2016 election, uh, understanding that there was a, a, a big opportunity uh, to elect a female president. And unfortunately, we didn't get that. But down ballot races are super important as well. And, and I wanted to play my part in that, especially helping a family friend. Okay. Well, I, I, when I played in DC, I I went in and lobbied in the Senate and the house and uh, I got to see some of the uh, political side. That may be another conversation. Uh, Political life is wild. Um, You know, but uh, when did, when did you start with the, with the twenties? Was that in college or uh, when you, I started right when I left school. It was actually my first camp with the 20s. Okay. And talk to me a little bit about your time there and, and the, the World Cup. It was, for a moment, I felt on top of the world. Uh, I had always kind of been on the outside looking in growing up with the national team. I felt like I deserved to be there, and I expressed my grievances to anyone who, who would listen. And my coach backed me and he would always call scouts on my behalf and get me invited to those local training centers with the national team, uh, organized by the national team. But for some reason, just wasn't quite what they were looking for at the time. That and I also didn't have an American passport, though. Uh, We know that there are ways to work through that and work with kids when they're young to get to that process. So whatever it was, I, I wasn't meeting that standard that they set in their eyes. And that kind of just added a little bit of motivation. So when I did get there, it felt great. And every time I played and, you know, I had a rocky first friendly, but from there it was like a straight ascension to success within that team. So it was just really gratifying and validating about the steps that I'd taken, whether it was going to Duke, whether it was playing club soccer, that I was on the right path playing next to guys who've been playing in MLS that were starting to get a lot of minutes. And then that air of almost arrogance, borderline arrogance, but that good feeling was just popped uh, in CONCACAF qualifying when we uh, 
we won the tournament, which was a historic moment for youth, the youth national teams. But I went my first, that was my first five games, five first five game streak without scoring a goal. Uh, and in that moment, I understood what it felt to be treated like the guy, the guy who was the most important person on the team. And to go to someone who is completely doubted by anyone and everyone besides my teammates, my teammates always believed, but that dip in confidence coincided with my arrival into MLS, which was just not the kind of mindset you want to be feeling as you enter into a locker room full of stars and veterans who are going to want to push you. And frankly, don't also don't have time to deal with like your emotions because this is a job and, and you got to come ready to play regardless of what you're feeling. So that was a, that led to a tough few months where I was in limbo. I was on the, on the border of not going to the world cup. And ultimately I, I made it there. And again, kind of on the outside looking in on the roster, but we were, we were a good team and had a really good group of guys. So it was all about rooting for each other, making it a memorable run, which it ended up being. And ultimately when my number was called for the New Zealand game, I stepped up and I think I proved a lot of people wrong, which again was another really important moment in my development. And I was able to follow that up with another strong performance in the quarterfinal. Our team felt a really strong Venezuela team, but uh, we were really proud of our accomplishments. And on an individual level, it was a, it was a moment of growth where uh, you, you can appreciate the good things that you do, but you have to understand that they might not always last. So you don't want to put yourself too high. And so that when you do get knocked down, uh, you don't feel that that low either. You want to kind of try and stay even keeled through through everything while still trying to find enjoyment in it too. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't realize. Uh, you know, you you had had that mental uh, that little bit of a mental. I don't want to say revelation, but that's that's important, especially as you go into the the big the big leagues. Uh, and for the for those fans that well, I remember watching that World Cup and uh, the Venezuela game, you scored a goal in that game. Y'all lost two to one, I think. But um, you know, you showed well at the end of that tournament. And I know Josh Sargent, I think, was on that squad. He got the the silver ball. Um, so y'all were y'all were y'all were competitive. It was fun to watch as an American fan. Yeah, great team, great guys. I mean, I, I think you, you're we're seeing the talent that the the national team has, and I think that cycle was uh, and the cycle above were two cycles that really started to uh, put the u.s stamp on youth national team tournaments say hey we're gonna play we're gonna try to outplay you in every way and beat you and we've gotten successive quarterfinal runs hopefully this next cycle can take it to the next level and and really validate a lot of the experiences that we're seeing in mls where young guys are succeeding Okay. And you kind of got ahead of yourself talking about going into a locker room with, uh, with MLS players in Portland. Um, what, what was, tell me a little bit about, I know you spent some time with the 23s at DC. Um, I think I was there um, during that, during that window. And then I also know you, you, you know, with the way that your story went, you signed a contract uh, before you got drafted uh, with the league, but I know you spent some time in Charleston as well. You also spent some time in Portland with Portland too. Um, just talk to me kind of about, you don't seem to mind. I know a lot of guys have an ego and like they let it, I think they let it get in their way. Uh, you seem to always be up for, you know, when, you know, wherever you needed to go and play and score goals, you seem, you know, ready to go do that. 
Yeah, it's it was a it was a unique path signing an MLS contract in the summer. I prior to that I traveled with a few teams and been around different kinds of locker rooms and gotten a feel for what men's level uh, professional football would would be like. And so getting to Portland, I knew there was an, a level of expectation, knowing that a team had traded up to get to, to get me in the draft, uh, but also being aware that the striker there had won an MLS cup and had been a leading goal scorer for the last three years. You know, you're coming into a locker room with Diego Valeri, one of the best players that this league has seen, frankly, for the consistency that he's put out these times, these types of performances. And then with Portland being a West coast team, I didn't have as much uh, visibility to them growing up, but I'll quickly learn that, you know, the whole team was a bunch of consummate professionals who were consistently pushing themselves and, uh, putting out a brand of football that people would be uh, really impressed with and, and would enjoy watching. So I knew that it would be a, an uphill battle to get minutes, but ultimately uh, if I worked with the coaching staff, if I built a good relationship with my teammates that they understood that I was here to play and not to gloat or not to kind of bask in, you know, whatever contract I had had or whatever came with that, that spotlight. Uh, it it put me in a position to succeed by the time that I did get the opportunity. Okay. Well, I like obnoxious stats or lists. And uh, my favorite one, I did find one, uh, you know, and, and dig, doing a little digging on you. Uh, you made the 20 under 20 list for the uh, USL or uh, and you were exactly number 20. So I, I kind of laughed because I was like, oh, you know, on some level they got it right that he was – 20 under 20, but maybe he should have been a little higher than 20. But that's just me, uh, me thinking something's funny. I'm not sure you do. Um, you did. You you talked about being. Uh, they traded up. Portland traded up to get you. You were fourth uh, in the draft. Uh, you come into a side uh, with Caleb Porter as the coach. Um, you know, tell me you didn't play a lot. I think you played one game. Uh, you got you got one game your first year. Just talk to me a little bit about uh, playing for him and. Um, you know, how you grew that first year? Yeah, it was a challenge. I mean, at the beginning of that year, I wasn't playing a lot and wasn't really playing with T2 either, just because I was kind of caught in that in-between where they want you on the bench, but you're not really getting into the game. But because you're on the bench, you can't play in the T2 game that's in a different state or where you're in a different state for that game. So I, I think I only played four or five games with T2 my, uh, my first season. And then all of a sudden we were kind of caught up in this moment where everyone was at gold cup and people were suspended for the following game. So we had, I think 12 field players for a game against Vancouver and Caleb was like, you're going to start and you're going to have a good game because you're ready. Like you've been working hard for this. And I was like, okay, I guess, I guess there's nothing else I can do. <laughs> so yeah, we got out to, we got out to Vancouver which ended up being a really tough game too. I remember that being my first start. I was a little intimidated in that moment, getting pushed around a little bit the first few minutes. And then uh, Espria hit a shot slash cross across goal and I goes in the right place, poked it in. And from there, I just felt confident. I felt like I can, I can be here, I can play. And it ended up being a great game. We won 2-1, big morale uplift, and then uh, put us in a good in a good good space to to fight for the Western Conference regular season. So 
that it took a while to get to that point. But from that point, uh, I was able to stay in the 18 for the rest of the year and uh, be a guy that would come off the bench in large part and contribute in meaningful ways. So it, it was, it wasn't the perfect rookie season where, you know, you saw a guy like Julian Gressel absolutely tearing it up that year. And you're wondering, ah, you, you want to be in that situation too. Right. But there was a lot of value in the, the learning curve that I had that year. Yeah. And, and the thing I loved about, you know, you talk about that goal. Uh, I remember when I scored my first goal, I kind of blacked out and then I did this really dumb, I was running around like an idiot. And, uh, and, and I, you definitely didn't, you definitely didn't look like an idiot, but you definitely, you had that moment where you're like, Oh, what do I, Oh, I'm going to go celebrate. And then you do this awkward jump and, you know, and I, I just thought I was like, that's real. That's like real emotion, right? That's a real, that's a real kid. That's happy um, that he got to score. And um, you know, I think uh, if I, if that's the same game, I think you had a, a, an assist that game too, right? To Blanco. Was that that game? Yeah, I did. And I thought, you know, the goal, great. You're, you're, it's a poacher's goal. You're in there, but the, the Blanco goal was more impressive to me and that, you, you know, your vision, you, you set him up. So um, it's a heck of a, heck of a way to make an introduction, especially, you know, that part of the, that part of the, I guess, continent, we'll call it. Um, that's a bit of a rivalry too. So, it um, is. you know, I, I love the, I love the goal celebration though. And I, you know, I, I, I enjoy emotion and I feel like you had some raw emotion. Uh, nothing's meditate premeditated in terms of your celebration. I think nowadays you would do something a little different. Am I right? They still really aren't premeditated. I get made fun of. Because they're like, why do you just fist bump or why do you just like run around? And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I, it, I'm trying to get more used to the feeling of scoring, but it feels like every goal is, whether it's lucky, whether it's an accident, whether it's the easiest goal in the world, it feels like every goal is so hard to come by. So I don't know how to react when it does happen. I think that's great. I think that's a good quality, right? Wando's like that. Um, I played with a guy in uh, Luciano Emilio that this guy would celebrate goals in practice to the point where people would try to fight him. Uh, but the guy loved to score goals, man. So I think that all the great goal scorers, um, they, they get that feeling every time. And that's, I think that's what they crave. I, I wouldn't know. I don't, I don't do that, but, um, but let's talk a little bit about the next year. You get a coaching change. Um, you get geo in there. Um, and, and really this, this is kind of a weird year and that, you know, the, the minutes, I mean, we talk, we go to the playoffs, you play every game in the playoffs, then y'all go to uh, MLS Cup. But just talk to me a little bit about a coaching change and, and how you're starting to really find your, your feet. Yeah, I think anyone is going to struggle with the coaching change at the beginning and just wonder where their place is in the team. And for me, it was a big step back uh, with that coaching change. I was a consistent member of T2 for the first part of the year. Uh, even training with them at times. There was a moment in the year where I even fell out of the T2 lineup. And, you know, I was really frustrated with that situation at myself, at some of the people around me. Uh, but ultimately, uh, you find your – if you I – th I do think that in the long run you get what you put into it. And I think I was giving it an honest effort every day, trying to find ways to get better, make myself noticed. And – a perfect storm of things happened and I ended up being the guy leading the team to MLS cup. Uh, so it, it was a, it was an interesting year, but again, another critical one in, in at least mental strength. Yeah, no, I think it was awesome. And that was quite a run you guys made, um, you know, opened a lot of people's eyes. I think you specifically opened a lot of people's eyes, um, your ability to score with either foot, 
you're great in the air. Um, I know that, you, you know, I, as I watch the games, your movement's really great. I, I know a lot of people don't see that. It's easy to try to label you uh, one thing or another, but I, I think you're kind of a complete package. And, um, you know, I like your movement. I think your movement is, uh, is, is really, you know, you're hard to track and you don't have to be physical because you're usually in good spaces. And, um, you know, we, I, you know, I don't want to inflate your ego or anything. I just, that's just my analysis. Um, let's talk a little bit about 2019. Um, you, you, you're tied for the team lead, I think with, uh, Brian Fernandez and goals. Um, I feel like you're starting, you're really starting to have some more success as opposed to the year before. Like you said, you're, you're falling out of uh, favor with the, the T2. Now you're, you're kind of more of a, a mainstay in the team. Yeah, 2019 started on a real high where getting to MLS Cup was amazing. Obviously, the outcome was awful, and my role in the outcome was uh, another learning experience. Uh, 2019, I started with my first cap, my first senior cap, and was able to translate that into a really good start of the year where we were away for the first 12 games. So that was a challenge that I wouldn't really wish on any team in this league. And then, yeah three quarters of the way through that we announced a big time signing in Brian Fernandez, who was probably one of the most talented, one of the most purely talented players I've played with. Uh, and he's coming in to my position, right? The position that I've tried to lock down the position that I've elbowed everyone out of the way, uh, at least I, I, that I tried to, and he's kind of the guy. So the psychology of dealing with, being kind of removed from the position that you worked so hard to make your own for a few games, but then also understanding that he's human and he's just a competitor and we're going to compete together against each other, but it's all going to be from a good place. Uh, that was really important to the team culture, making sure that there weren't any real egos. Um, and then, yeah, we, we all kind of found a good gel uh, towards the end of that away stand and, had a few ups and downs going into the summer, especially in, in September, but ultimately uh, it, it was a very challenging year for, for our team. And, and just with everything going on, we weren't quite able to unlock our potential and probably a little bit too much of uh, just a, a little bit of chaos and, and not organized chaos. So 2019 wasn't perfect, but uh, we would learn from it. and and pick up the slack in 2020 for sure. Yeah. And this is something you might not feel comfortable talking about. Um, it was just something that's relevant. Recently I was talking to a, a friend of mine, he plays professional baseball and he was asking, uh, he said, you know, are there any crazy guys in the locker room when you played or, you know, are there any crazy guys? And I said, yeah, every locker room had a couple crazy guys and almost all of them I realized were forwards. They were, <laughs> Like, it's just something about that position. I, I think it takes kind of a crazy person to, you know, uh, all the pressure that's on you, I think, can cause someone to go crazy. But, um, you know, I feel like you played with some crazy people in, in your short period in MLS. And uh, I, don't, I don't ever want you to talk badly about anybody. Um, but I feel like you, uh, you differentiate yourself from some of these guys and um, that I feel like you're always pretty level-headed and you're pretty, rel you know, uh, you're pretty aware, I guess, self-aware is the word. Um, and I just don't feel like, I feel like, you know, I know what I'm going to get when I watch the game. And, you know, I think 
some of these other guys, you know, I just, I've seen you play with or guys that played ahead of you or, or, you know, for whatever reason they were playing on the teams you've been on. Um, you know, you don't know if the guy's going to score three goals. You don't know if the guy's going to get a red card, you know, and a lot of times they did get red cards and a lot of times they had off the field drama. And I just feel like as a, as a young guy, that's, that's not good for your development. If you're seeing the guys ahead of you and the older veterans, um, maybe having some issues, uh, how do you, you know, do you, do you see that and say, okay, that's not, I'm learning and that's not what I want to do. Or, um, how does that impact you, uh, as a, as a young guy? Yeah, you see different people around different teams in, in your own locker room and how they carry themselves, and you obviously pick role models, right? And for me, a, a good role model is a guy like Diego Chara and what he does on a daily basis, how he takes care of his body. You see it every day, with every game, with how much he runs and how well he's able to, to sustain such a high level of play. Uh, what I'll say to maybe some guys who you might be describing sometimes that edge is what makes them successful. So while I might be sometimes self-aware or even killed, whatever it might be to describe it, that maybe sometimes I do like that edge, that unpredictability. And that's something that I've definitely thought about and, and tried to add to the game. It's not going to be natural for me necessarily, but if I can find ways to add that to, to my game, I do think that could uh, add a different layer. Answer, uh, you know, you said I'm not. This is not a. It wasn't a ploy to shed light on any anyone's life or anything like that. But um, I think even when you you in DC when you train there with us, I, I know we had a couple of guys that were loose cannons in the locker room, and uh, you know any any young guy seeing that stuff, it's I think it's a horrible sign. Um, you know, we try to try to put an end to that as a leader, but it's you know people are people, right? They're gonna do what they want to do, and. Um, but let's fast forward past that. 2020, we kind of went through, um, you know, how you handled it. And it was, it was kind of a rough year from uh, a, a ton of perspectives. I think the MLS Cup back tournament was great. Um, I got into a little bit of a thing online where uh, Merritt Paulson jumped in. Um, I talked about, you know, do you guys get to put a star on your jersey for winning that? Because at the time, we don't know if that's the whole season. Um, but I, I really like Merritt Paulson, and I think he's outspoken, and I think he's very, very passionate about the clubs there, and I think he's very passionate for his players. You know, you know, lately it's been Diego uh, Chara and and his snub from you know some of the best players in MLS history, which I think has some merit. Um, talk to me about your relationship with him. Uh, do you feel like y'all get along, or do you have no relationship with him, or or what's your relationship like with with him? Yeah, I think. Anyone who, who knows him or who knows the public persona uh, understands that he is very passionate about the team. And so he's very involved. You know, we see him at, in a regular year where we're able to have a relatively open environment. We're seeing him at training, you know, any, anywhere from once to, to multiple times a week. Uh, and he's just checking in on us. You know, he knows we're people first, but, you know, he's always rooting for each and every one of us and, you can have a conversation with him about the game. You, you can also have a conversation with him about stuff off the field uh, as well. So he, he's been uh, the guy kind of pushing us from, from above, the guy rooting for us. He's the first fan, as he likes to describe himself sometimes. Uh, and he's someone who invests in the team. I think that's what you see. He invests in the players. He invests in the facilities. He invests in the thorns. Uh, we've, got, we've got a good environment here. And I think – 
the more the more owners we have who have that level of passion in their team, the more I think the more success and the more uh, attraction that team will bring as well. And, and the energy is almost contagious too as a player. Yeah, no, I, I love I love his voice for you guys, and I love that he gets into it and defends you guys. And uh, he was nothing but nice to me when I was a player. Um, I got to spend some time with him uh, in Portland during the All Star game one year, and um, you know, I just I, I was curious to see uh, your relationship with him. You talk about the city. Um, congratulations! I know you were the supporters player of the year this year. Um, that's got to be uh, mean a lot to you. Um, I want to switch it up a little bit. I want to talk about the the Olympics. I don't. Uh, I'm, I'm in a. You know, I know we're all in limbo with with what's going on. But you were uh, selected to you know potentially be on the the roster to go to the Olympics. Um, it's a bit heartbreaking, I think, for everybody, especially someone that's your age. Um, do we do we know where we stand on the postponement on that, or are you still going to be? It's it's definitely. It feels like limbo to me, at least. I think I expect 97s will still be able to play it, but no one really knows. There hasn't been any official announcement. Okay. Well, as a soccer fan, I think the World Cup is the biggest uh, thing you can be a part of. As a sports fan, I think the Olympics is the pinnacle. Um, You know, if you do get a chance to go, I know that for you, this is huge, not just as an athlete, but um, I've seen you talk a little bit about the the international stage, especially through sports. Uh, it's a chance to really uh, drive change. And uh, I've seen some stuff where they're going to ban any kind of uh, – they were talking about banning any kind of protests or things of that nature. Good luck with that. But, I mean, <laughs> h- how, do you, how do you feel about, um, you know, if you do get a chance to go, what will that mean to you? What will that mean to your family? Uh, it's got to be huge. Yeah, you, as a kid, you kind of look at these benchmarks, right? You're like, I want to play in a U-17 World Cup. I want to play in a U-20 World Cup. I want to play uh, in a full World Cup. And then every every age group or so, every few age groups or so, gets to aspire to the Olympics. So our age group has been talking about the Olympics, imagining ourselves as leaders. And we thought 2020 was going to be that time where we were going to be able to execute on those dreams. But Obviously, the world had a had a different plan for all of us, and now we're looking at hopefully 2021 pulling off an Olympics in a safe environment. Uh, and a lot of things have to go right for me as an individual to actually get onto that plane. We've got an ever-growing, talented pool of players that are doing so many uh, really impressive things in this league that maybe we didn't always have with such consistency. But I know whoever makes it onto that plane it's going to be a really, really uh, impressive showing from the U.S., whether you're talking about the full team regulars already or the guys who are just getting their first professional experience this year. We're, we're ready to compete from top to bottom. But if, I, if I'm on that plane, that'll be a huge honor, obviously. You know, talk to me a little bit about what Black Players for Change is doing and how you, how you, uh, you know, became a founder and, and on the executive board. Yeah, that's a lot. I know. Sorry. I could, no, no, you're good. I could, I'm just saying I could speak uh, to, to the different parts of that question for days because there's, there's just so much that goes into myself growing into that kind of role, uh, 
coming from an international family that obviously growing up in a different country doesn't make you immune to racism or systemic racism, whatever it might be. France is no different necessarily than uh, some of the things that we see going on in this country as well, uh, as well as, you know, countries that were colonized in Africa. So that perspective is different than someone who is a multiple generation or descendant of black Americans. So I want to be cognizant of that. And growing up, I had to learn more and more about the history of this country as well, because again, this wasn't passed down from generation to generation. And the more I found out, the more I was like, okay, this more people need to know. And the more simply you can put things, I find that the more people will digest them. So there's a movie, the 13th, which as soon as I got into the league, every person that asked me anything social justice related, I pointed them to the 13th. I'm like, start with the 13th. It'll trace a very linear progression of slavery to mass incarceration and a lot of the socio-political debates around the, the decades that they're, they're following. And then we can have a conversation. And it was really hard to get people to watch that documentary. It was an hour and 40 minutes on Netflix. I couldn't get people to watch it. All of a sudden in 2020, everyone's watching it. <laughs> so it's just the, the cycle, everything's kind of come full circle, right? But for me, once I kind of got that information, it, I felt like I had this opportunity to be a vehicle to disseminate it to hopefully my growing list of followers of people that want to interact with me that want to understand this perspective. So by the time we got to 2020 and the devastating, uh, brutal killing of George Floyd, uh, I as an individual was in a position to uh, speak to a wider group of people who are now listening for, for really the first time. And I think that what I really found in that moment was that there are a lot of people like me who were having, trying to have these conversations that weren't able to, that people weren't listening to them and they try to channel it in a different way. But once we all got together through Black Place for Change, we were really able to go into every group of people, whether it was, you know, every different constituent in MLS and in our communities, we were able to speak to them and say, hey, listen, this is a group of people that is available to speak to you, that is gonna work on initiatives within the community, but also as you self-reflect, we are here to hold you accountable as well. So it's been a, it's been a long year, but one of the biggest bright spots was forming that organization that will be sustainable for years to come and that will only grow in efficiency as well as we really start to refine the the work that we're going to be able to do. And you talk about, you know, telling people that there's now, uh, there's there's a, a voice and a forum for for these conversations. Do you feel like um, at first it was, you know, I, I've seen a lot of you. Uh, I know you wrote an article for uh, for Medium, I think, and it was uh, like, what was the title? I, I don't care about your feelings. Is that <laughs> or I don't? It's I, I, that, it, for your comfort. Sorry, I have it in my notes, but I I wanted to call it. I think you should have just titled it "F Your Feelings." Um, you know, but. I get the point. Um, I always, I, I had Jaleel on. I said that I think that anyone should go read the athletic article where uh, you and Ray and Earl and, uh, and Jaleel talk. And I thought, I thought you really, and Quincy, I uh, don't want to leave him out. 
I thought you really come across, um, you know, I, I've been following you for a while, so I, I'm aware of, you know, you talking about voter suppression and immigration policy at the borders and uh, systemic racism. But for people that haven't seen it, um, you know, I always say you got to start somewhere. And I know you're talking about, um, you know, you, you, you recommend a movie. I always say uh, anything that can, if someone's curious, they need to go uh, do their own homework. And have you found that players uh, and people in general you're following or maybe people that don't follow you do you find that there's actual uh, engagement and that it's continuing to happen or um, you know how how do you feel about you know the way the country is reacting well the first part i think you made a comment on, on the title and <laughs> the for me it's always about like messaging right where i say it's not meant for your comfort because the more the more uh I need to package and we need to package information to meet people where they are. And if it becomes too adversarial or uh, it becomes too antagonistic, people aren't going to want to take it. They're going to feel this internalized attack and they're not going to want to process the information that's actually going. So that was actually one of the more aggressive things that I've said in the last five years when I've really had this platform. Uh, but I'm glad that people understood that it was coming from a good place, wanting to really connect with people on a deeper level. And I think that people actually, in the wake of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, really felt it in a deeper way than, than they've ever felt it. And the combination of multiple things, pandemic and, and life standing still, was definitely a factor in that. But while I do think that now people are trying to move on and starting to move on, I do think that there will be a lasting imprint on what the summer months uh, had on people. And movements ebb and flow, but if you have a strong backbone of leaders pushing the movement and making sure that as people fade into darkness as far as uh, no longer following what's going on and maybe we're just on a bandwagon at the time, uh, those leaders will will keep people accountable, and that's what that's where we're at right now, and and we'll where we'll continue to be in the future. Okay, I um, mean, you talk about leaders and leadership. Um, I I I couldn't uh, from my when I was you know preparing for this interview, I, I couldn't figure out if you were a captain as a sophomore in high school or if it was college. But you talk about you you know no one prepares you to be a leader, right? There you just all of a sudden kind of find yourself in that role. Um, and you were saying, I don't know if I was a good leader. I just did the best I could. I, I'd say now you're more of a leader than you've ever been. Um, you know, how have you embraced that? And it's, you're at a really young age to, to have a lot of people looking to you for, uh, for advice, looking to you to be the voice of reason, which I think you are. Um, you know, how are you handling being a leader now? Um, you know, cause I know earlier in life you were questioning, if you were a good one or not. Yeah, I think I always have room to grow, room to learn, uh, room to learn and, and effectively communicate. I think that's one of the most important things in, in being a leader. But for me, I'm, I'm less interested in being the public face of something, of slapping my name or my face on every good thing that comes out of, of a project. I'm, I'd much rather be the guy behind the scenes. I'd much rather help other people look good and know that 
I was able to have a, a meaningful impact on the actual day-to-day or on the actual uh, work, quote-unquote, that, that's being done. And so I don't know if that's necessarily leading, but I, I definitely see my role as more of a behind-the-scenes actor than someone who's going to take every interview or, or whatever it might be. I think we, we all kind of grow into different positions as we, as we grow up. And being able to have leadership qualities in whatever role you're going to be in, I think will, will suit, suit well. Yeah. Listen, this is just the old, old captain in me. Um, I, I think that there's a time to be humble, but if, if you really are the best person at, you know, and, and you know, the way you talk in terms of delivering the message. Um, I mean, everything I've seen that you've been in, and like I said, I will always reference back to that athletic article. I feel like you, you just have a way of drawing, uh, attention to the things that matter. And, uh, you know, I, I think that there's something for that and that, you know, people want to hear what you have to say. So I would embrace that. And, um, you know, I hope you continue to do this, uh, in terms of be a leader, be a founder, be a, a, a driver for change, because I think you're very talented at it. Um, I, I think that you're, you're very eloquent in the way you speak. I think when people ask you questions, just even doing this interview, you you know, you hear the question, you think about it, and you're able to deliver a response quickly. You correct me when I'm wrong, and that's important too, because um, a lot of people are wrong, and I think it's it's important. Uh, even if you're wrong sometimes, that's going to happen, but I, I don't know. I think you should embrace this. Um, you know, you are a, a leader at a very young age, but I, I definitely think um, you are the one of the important people for this Black Players for Change and, and embrace that, and, you know, even if that means you're in front of the camera, so be it. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see. I, I, I definitely uh, agree and, and echo that sometimes, you know, you got to step up. And if, if I need to step up in certain regards and be more public facing, then I'm ready to do that, too. I just when it comes to activism, I can't stand when people misconstrue uh, authentic people trying to do good work and actually doing good work for uh ego boosts and, and uh, popularity contests because that can be further from the truth when you're talking about the organization that we've built and the way that we've operated. We, we've been in this together and, and I just want everyone to really be aware of that from you know, the board members down to the, the guy who maybe isn't as actively involved on a day-to-day, but you know that when you call on him, he's ready to step up and he's excited to do so. Uh, that, I really want to highlight the, that essence okay well i know you you say you don't want to uh, be the guy but you were uh, i'm going to brag about you here you were uh, nominated for the humanitarian of the year um you know in the league uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, i think it's educate elevate engage talk to me about what you have going on initiatives in uh, in portland yeah educate elevate engage was a process that we started this February, I want to say for Black History Month. And it was, I would say a few months worth of work when it came to, uh, when it came to making sure that Black History Month wasn't the only time that you were able to speak about race, which is something that this country does way too often. I've been caught in conversations where people have literally told me, hey, maybe you should wait to to have this conversation or to do this. Maybe wait until Black History Month. I think that would be a good time for you to work on that. I'm like, 
that that is just a, it is plain offensive to think that black people only have value in the projects that they want to do in the a 28 day span uh, so when i spoke with portland they were like what do you want to do like how do you want to plan this and i was like first and foremost i want this to be a consistent thing i want this to be something that we can point to throughout the year and we can activate throughout the year i think we put together a decent plan a decent framework to start but ultimately uh, we were just caught up in 2020 you know the cba and, and what would become the pandemic and everything so we were able to get some stuff done and at the beginning but the the longevity that we're talking about was sidelined a little bit until the summer and in the summer we were able to regroup again and say okay well how did we reach you know the the benchmarks that we set and i think honestly we could reflect and say that while some good had been done we hadn't quite reached that level of uh consistency that we were aiming for and again some of that is due to the pandemic we've we the year before we had had a summit called portlanta between portland and atlanta uh, high school aged kids and a bunch of workshops and activities with those kids in in the city that the portland atlanta game would be in and something like that would have was canceled this year so i definitely don't want to I, I need to give credit where credit's due that work was set to be done and had been being done but the moment of self-reflection was was an important one where we set out a goal to have e3 will some will we'll call it uh, be a consistent uh, framework to build off of and we kind of lost slack on it as an organization we didn't uh, accomplish that goal but in the summer we we put ourselves back in the driving seat to to continue those efforts and so i think that as people navigate the challenges of 2020, the financial implications of a global pandemic and how hard it's hit sports, you know, the philanthropic side as well is going to be a part of that challenge as well. How do you get the most out of a program when budgeting is a little bit harder to, to accomplish? And so that's how we're, that's how I'm personally assessing 2021. Uh, but I believe that there will be some really strong things going on. Uh, in Portland, but also in, with, within Black Players for Change and with our influence in the league. Okay, and then, it, I mean, I'm not sure how, I, I know uh, this question's more towards the philanthropic side. Um, how can people that are listening, if they want to help, uh, what would your message be, um, you know, to any listeners out there? Yeah, this is something I've been asking myself a lot uh, the last four years. And I get different answers. The, the first thing, and I had a conversation recently, but the first thing is why, why is that person wanting to get involved? Once they figure that out, then they put themselves in a position to actually do something that either meets that goal or rearranges that goal because the, the priorities weren't in line. Because volunteering is tough. Uh, finding the right places to volunteer is tough too, but uh, right now what we're seeing is, you know, food banks are overstretched. And so maybe sometimes it is just donating resources, whether it's donating food or donating money to organizations, because we're not experts. We're experts in very few things, right? And so someone who says, hey, I think it's terrible that public schools are so underfunded and that it affects predominantly black and brown schools 
someone's not necessarily going to be able to go into schools and fix the education system, right? So, but on the flip side, there's a nonprofit organization that is, that has been doing so for decades. And that probably hasn't had the spotlight or the, uh, the spotlight or maybe the necessary funds or whatever it might be to be as successful as they are. So maybe it's tapping in with them, offering yourself as a service, as a volunteer, but if they don't need that, being really receptive to what that nonprofit might ask of you. Because at the end of the day, it's not always the glamorous work that's going to be the volunteering that you get to do. It might be like, uh, this again, this comes from a conversation I just had, but it might be helping someone by making them a meal or by uh, taking care of their kids so that they can actually go to wherever it is that they need to be in order to tackle these systems because they're an expert in that system, but they have constraints as a human as well, whether it's children or, you know, life in general. That was a very long and complicated way of saying it, it volunteering differs, but the general point that I would say is people should find what they're passionate about. What do they actually want to do and why are they doing it? And then they should offer themselves up to those people. And then aside from that, everyone has a voice, you know, whether you're a celebrity or not, and making sure that you use that voice and that you don't co-opt words and try to over-interpret them, but literally point people to the experts, you know, point people to the podcasts, point people to the books. Uh, and, and through a base of information, hopefully you head into elections which are really important not just for president but for district attorney in certain places or judges in certain places and you put people in positions that uh, will deliver on some of the changes that you are personally seeking well i tell you what so i said you you got a you got an opinion that that's uh that i love i hope the the uh, listeners enjoy it um for those that uh, don't already follow you on Instagram or social media. Um, I know I love your Instagram. You always, I, I swear, I don't know where you get all your shirts and your hats and your masks and stuff, but uh, I, I think they're cool. Um, where can people, where can people go after they listen to this? Um, I'm not even going to, I think I know how to say your, your handle, but I'd rather you say it. Cause <laughs> you've already given me crap about butchering some of the other things I've said on here. So uh, where, where can people find you all, um, you know, outside of uh, listening to this podcast? Uh, they can find me on Twitter, Instagram at King Jabo, which King and then J Ebo kind of pretty simple, but it's been, it's been with me for a while. <laughs> and I know, I know Diego calls you that. Um, so that's, that's great. But, uh, but listen, I, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on. Um, you know, I, I think your play on the field is impressive. I think what you've got going on off the field is is just as impressive. It's incredible to watch um, you kind of write your own story and, and, you know, you pick causes and things that you think are important. And, um, you know, I think they're important. I can't speak for everybody, but I think they're human elements that uh, that go uh, – unnoticed in this in this industry and and that's what the point of this podcast is and there's no one better than you at uh at seeing the big picture so thank you so much for giving us your time and uh, and coming on the podcast and i hope you enjoyed it no i appreciate you guys having me thank you that's jeremy abobasi j king j say it again i'm gonna i'm gonna butcher it i want to say <laughs> all right well there you go thanks for coming on and uh you know thank you guys for listening uh, we'll see you next time.
Thank you for listening to Play by Players. Visit playbyplayerspod.com for more episodes or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a production of the MLSPA. Learn more at mlsplayers.org.